music. Thank you. Hi, good evening, everyone. If I could just ask everyone to take their seats, we'll start. Um, as you do so, and as our speakers join us, I just wanted to thank you all for joining us, particularly during a train strike. I also wanted to give two uh, thank yous um, out on the Balderton team, one to Steph for setting up this entire event. She does a great job. Thank you, Steph. Um, and another thank you to our amazing analyst, Savesh, whose idea it was in the first place to actually gather a group of capital markets-focused people, and then he kind of stayed on me until we made it happen. And so I'm grateful to him um, for, for doing that. So I'm really excited to introduce to you our two um, luminaries, frankly. So Enrico Bruni is the head of TradeWeb International here in London, and TradeWeb is the leading <coughs> fixed income trading platform globally, for those who are not familiar with it. And then Murray Rose is the head of capital markets for the London Stock Exchange Group, based here, obviously, in London also. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for Pleasure, Roma. Yeah. Thank you for having us here. So I'm going to try to keep this interactive and just draw on really kind of the, the wisdom of the years that you guys have been in capital markets. So for me, capital markets is really broad. It's equities, it's fixed income, it's commodities, it's also crypto. I hate to say this out, out loud, but it is. Um, and as a result, it's really exciting because there's a lot of places that, that we can go. And one of the things that I've reflected on in my two years at Balderton is that we overestimate change in the short run, but we underestimate the ability for change in the long run. And so I'd love to start with both of you reflecting on a major movement that's happened in capital markets that was either unforeseen or not the consensus move. Shall I start? I, you, you know what I'm going to yes, talk about. Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, one of the like biggest move in capital markets, almost <clears throat> like a, like a business business school kind of study, is. Uh, it even has a name. It's called the Battle of the Bonds. It's when the uh, the Boone Future contract uh, moved uh, from life to Deutsche Börse Eurex competitors. Sorry, uh, they it was interesting uh, back then. Like the futures market was er were early. Life was was started in around the early 80s, 1982, soon after the Big Bang, and as a like a consortium of like uh, bro brokers essentially. Mm. Um, and and uh, um, started with the guild future and the short term short term future, and then quickly uh, introduced the the boon future. Um, that created a bunch of noise. It picked up a lot. Obviously, boons were already back then the largest uh, bond market in Europe with the Deutsche Mark and all. And all. Uh, picked, it picked up very quickly, and uh, as you may imagine, the <coughs> Germans were not super happy about that, uh, given the uh, kind of significance of a, a hedging instrument in German governments kind of trading in London. Mm. Um, the Deutsche Börse started to respond. It was not, not until like like the early 90s, probably 1990. And uh, um, the response to Deutsche Börse was like uh, very uh, parochial at the beginning. Uh, and so kind of engaging with the German players and, and like their market share went from, you know, obviously zero to about 15, 20% and kind of w got stuck there for a little while. While instead on life, very quickly, the boom became the contract of reference. It's uh, at this point, it's kind of mid nineties anticipation of euros, the big convergence mm -hmm. trade. So all of that, um, uh, you know, creates a, a certain like, uh, 
core of liquidity and in particular in futures with uh, 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 the order book uh, trading style uh, liquidity calls for liquidity so so the assumption was it's never going to move the germans are going, are, are going to fail but there were like multiple uh, 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 factors where if you were to look at this market in 1995, you think it's, it's never gonna move from London. When you look at it in 1998, so eight years after the German start, uh, pretty long-term in, in capital markets, it was all in, uh, in Frankfurt, that's what it is now. Three factors. Uh, factor number one is uh, uh, the pressure of regulators, uh, that continued pressure of regulators in Germany to wanting to have that uh, you know, contract uh, in, in Germany. And, and that's relevant because in capital markets, regulatory changes are a major uh, driver of uh, change and opportunities for market structure disruption, disruption and therefore for people like you guys to take advantage of that. Number two, uh, fees. They worked on their fees. Like obviously frictional cost is uh, very important, particularly in futures where uh, so the, the, the business is uh, uh, based on like little tiny bits of <coughs> a lot of volumes, especially in a contract bond, which is the issues of choice. And most importantly is network. The Deutsche Börse identified way ahead of life the importance of technology and network effect. So to trade on life, you had to be based in London. You had to be a member or connected to a member. You had to be based in London. It was an open outcry. For many years, and we, we're very familiar with the story, open outcries in between, between 90 and 96, 7, when it started to flip, uh, was considered the place to be where risk transfer voice, you know, it's the way to transfer risk and, you know, open outcry, concentrate risk. But uh, um, the Deutsche Börse uh, team went full on on electronification uh, and removing friction to the network. So they, al they made a bunch of partnership with regulators around the world, including the US, surprising not, not the UK uh, authorities, so that you could actually access DTV, uh, was called back then, from everywhere technologically, i.e. electronically. Okay. And that was the change, like the, net, the power of the network and the power of the network uh, uh, compounded by the technology of Deutsche Börse co as compared to an open outcry of, of life, regulatory pressure fees gradually they move. At some point it tips and when the tip happens, that was it in 98 before the euro comes, the hedging instrument of choice in Europe, the price formation instrument of choice in euros is on, on Eurex and it, from there it's very difficult to move. Anyway, that change is was not foreseen for sure given the core liquidity that uh, life had back then. I, I actually was at JP Morgan then doing uh, uh, back office of futures and I remember like all of a sudden, little by little, that, that those, those blotters were like from life to, uh, to Deutsche Börse. Uh, it was not foreseen, it takes a long time and the power of regulation, commercial you know, mechanisms and, and network effect compounded by technology is what made that happen. So as Enrico alluded to, like I asked him to tell this story, yes. and I knew what he was talking, what he's going to say, because when I reflect on this, I think 
what is still not well understood in capital markets is that such a huge portion of the business that you guys all touch in different ways um, has so much opportunity still for automation um, and for technology to disrupt and for the network effect to be the tipping factor that brings business over to whomever wins wins the, the business. And actually that's what makes me still like really excited about investing in capital markets specifically as like a subsector of fintech. And the the Bund story is like an amazing story of like complacency mm -hmm. and also a story of resilience and the reality is that venture whether you're on the founding side or the investing side is longer than the average marriage in the UK and America and so like if you're not if you're not in for that you're kind of going to miss the, yeah. the opportunity. and the back end of the story is that life demutualized after that and and went full electronic it's full electronic now yeah. Murray your reflections on this so, <coughs> thanks, Ron. It's actually quite interesting because I, I didn't know <coughs> Enrico was going to tell the Bund story. Um, and yet, my, uh, my reflection on this really does tie in with, with both of these. Uh, I'd say the thing that we are uh, overestimating the impact on the short term, uh, and I think a lot of people in this room, ourselves, uh, very much uh, also find as a, as a source of frustration um, is how long it is taking to consumerize capital markets. Um, however, I think we are getting ourselves to the place uh, and a point where that tipping point technologically, regulatorily, uh, and culturally is going to be reached such that when we look at a few years' time, we'll look back and say, wow, capital markets has fundamentally changed underneath our eyes, um, while it hasn't really felt like it on a day-by-day basis. And I think uh, this is, you know, we're, we're starting to see signs of this, mm -hmm. you know, even if you just go back to uh, thinking about bank branches and consumer banks, you know, people never thought that there wouldn't be bank branches in mm -hmm. co consumer banks in 10 years time. And that online banking's happened and one or two people said, hey, do you bank online? I've, I've transferred money online. It happened very slowly. And then all of a sudden you look back and no banks have got branches anymore and the whole world works online. And obviously, that the network effect and the facility with the, the layering effect, every little bit of consumerization or self-directedness that happens in capital markets facilitates the next one, hmm. and facilitates the next one. They're building blocks that, that we build on. And you know, we're seeing this, uh, we used to see little spots of it. Uh, we're seeing it thick and fast now. Um, you know, two of our, two of our partners, uh, I've seen the, the Apatol guys are here, the Simidine guys are here. Um, very much the same, uh, very much the same idea. The ability to allow customers to be self-directed in uh, in either um <coughs> sourcing block liquidity or testing algorithms or whatever it might be, mm. um, enabled by technology. And so, <coughs> we are we we're definitely seeing uh, this happening. You know, as as we speak, um, one of the big one of the big shoes to drop, I think, that is going to really cause that tipping point to come much much closer is uh, the change in market model to being all-to-all -all everywhere. Uh, so obviously, uh, we have an all-to-all -all model in FX. Yeah. Uh, in, many, in many respects, we still do have primary markets and leading markets, but an increasingly all-to-all -all market in FX. The equity market is crazily, crazily old. You know, and I, I'm sitting here as a stock exchange, but to have members and members trading against members and then clearing and with cl uh, with clearing members 
if you think about the technology we have and the reason why we set the businesses up, or we set the market model up like that in the first place, all of those reasons pretty much have gone. Yeah. And the technology that, has, uh, that is, is, is happening and consumer appetite uh, for more self-directed investment is really starting to, to, to change that. You know, we ourselves are, are looking at developments um, to, to be able to accommodate those, that direction. But uh, so I think that all-to-all -all, um, side is, is, is very, very important. Mm. Uh, and then the safety that uh, the, m the market models were set up to be able to uh, guarantee can be now replicated technologically. If mm. you think about transactions on chain, uh, if you think about the auditability of those, uh, the, the, the rule following that's possible in secondary transfers of value, for example, across the blockchain, uh, allows us to solve big problems of suitability and credit risk and uh, auditability and surveillance and to allow us to still have uh, way more of the investment decision in the hands of the actual consumer rather than the hands of financial intermediaries. Um, obviously, it's cheaper. Uh, obviously, it's faster. Mm. And those are, are, are drives that happen. So I think I would say that consumerization is probably the thing that I think um, we, we see the biggest. And that, that's in line with what we've said. Thank you for your, for your answer, Mary. So my partner Rob and I have written on the consumer consumerization of fintech. And one of the things that makes us like really excited about what you all are doing here in the room is we, we look at the super valuable companies that have been created to have institutions do what Murray just said, to do the fraud, the credit risk checking, the KYC. You know, these are each, each of these alone is like a $10 billion com company. And then you think about the fact that both in kind of web two land, but consumer, but also in Web3 land, none of this exists. And so there's such a huge opportunity to build dozens of like really valuable companies Absolutely. to address all the things that you've said. And historically, the most interesting companies who have done that in capital markets have done it out of Europe. So the US has been kind of the forefront of like front-facing capital markets. And historically, Europe is um, the pipes and plumbing. And I don't know if this is like shocking or not shocking to the group, but the latter are more valuable because they're toll takers and every single transaction has to go through them, right? So that's like what gets us at Ballerton like really excited about capital markets is that this fintechization of the, the consumer can spawn like so many companies generally. Yep. Building on that, if you look forward five years, what today excites both of you the most about what could happen in five years? Yes, so I, I'm going to kind of reflect a little bit of what we're seeing in our space, yep. fixed income, electronic trading <coughs> and and i think we are we have been in this journey of transformation of this kind of old school market for a while you know as you, as you know very well uh but we we are generally at a tipping point where you know what we've done historically in in the electronic fixed income is to focus on electronifying workflow something to do on the chat on the phone we structure it on, <coughs> on, a, on, a, on, on a screen, sort of structured messaging and so forth. Uh, and then you, this workflow becomes more and more robust on the pre-trade side, more you know, price formation, post-trade STP and everything. Once that workflow is established, like the next stage we saw starting about 10 years ago, long time to impact, mm -hmm. uh, is to make that uh, workflow like faster automated like leaving the execution decision to the machine in a fairly static way though 
what, what we think is going to is happening already is to uh, have the execution uh, moving away from the human trader uh, on a on a trade by trade basis but into uh, uh, machines uh, by uh, two uh, factors like what factor number one is the use of data and and uh, uh, AI machine learning technology prediction technology in identifying the two things the price level of where the liquidity sits for a specific transaction uh, and number two to improve the interface between the trader and the machine like right now the interface is either like manually based or it's uh, uh, kind of faceless. What we're trying to do is to move from a, a, where a world where, uh, where like the trading request is kind of static, it's more dynamic and kind of can change according to the market condition. We all know like last couple of weeks has been crazy, particularly in the, in the sterling markets and having like uh, the ability to uh, uh, kind of control the trading activity in real time is impactful. We think that that is actually happening and will shape the market in the future. So an analogy I like to bring uh, at this point is uh, Formula One. I'm a huge fan. Uh, in, uh, uh, if you ever w s had the opportunity to watch a video of like the, the Monaco poll of Arton Senna 1990 and Lewis Hamilton 2019, they're doing the same thing. Same goal, they're doing the same job, driving fast, streets on Monaco, make the poll. Mm -hmm. But they do it in a very different way. Ayrton is like sweating, uh, moving the head, and, and like actually steer a steering wheel. Well, Lewis is super smooth, uh, he controls the computer, and it's a different skill set, although it's the same job, and he's going faster. Mm. Uh, it is a lot safer. Uh, the analogy is very similar, if yeah. you think about that, what we are actually doing in, in capital markets. Uh, uh, and I think that, that will change the nature of the skill set of the trading desk on buy and sell side. So the, uh, it's, it's a trend you, you, you've seen you know, yep. from your past, uh, how kind of the trading uh, profiles have been evolving. And, but also it will impact how we service these people, the kind of interaction us as capital market service providers will have to have with uh, those guys the type of conversation are evolving uh, way more towards a uh, quantitative yeah. uh, engagement and therefore our people need to change and how does this room capture that trend what do you think that is the, the most valuable thing that they can do to capture what you what you've just said the the to it's like figuring out I, I don't it depends on like where, where which business they are on but like it's like what is the uh, for us the driver is the the goal right yeah. so so what's the goal like okay it evolves right yeah. with, uh, with the impact of technology and like make sure that you can uh, uh, adapt your offering to match that that goal the challenge on talent is very difficult right mm. particularly for when you're early I was a trade web very early mm. uh, and so at some point it was really hard for us to hire uh, be because we would face an, the issue, despite the support of, uh, you know, 10 banks back then, you know, it was difficult to hire uh, a certain type of talent. Uh, so that, that challenge is, is, <laughs> is hard. The competition is, is super, super hard. Um, but uh, uh, through like, you know, the way we, 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 we tended to attract talent back then is by, you know, really focusing on like the, uh, the nature of disruption and creating mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, attraction, innovation as a driver of change. You know. <coughs> right. Um, yeah, it's, I it's interesting just listening to Enrico talking about Formula One and uh, talking about uh, adaptive trading systems and electronic uh, bond trading. 
One of the things that is driving both of those uh, improvements, mm. uh, be it uh, the AI that is allowing you to have adaptive trading systems or the computer that is allowing Lewis to go faster, is uh, the efficient uh, and cost-effective uh, acquisition and use of data. And the thing that I'm most excited about, uh, obviously we're a data company, but the thing that I'm most excited about over the next five years is uh, the democratization of that data that, again, technology is facilitating. Uh, in the past, the ability to draw meaningful conclusions from data <coughs> was very, very slow, very expensive, mm -hmm. uh, and very much the domain of data scientists and data experts. Uh, now, with changes in technology, the fact that all the state is now in the cloud, it is much, much easier to use, it's much, much easier to transport and to store. Um, we can really explode the amount of data that is used to make decisions without exploding um, the, uh, the baggage that it, that it creates. Uh, and I think that over the next five years, something that's truly exciting is how much we are going to be able to accelerate progress mm. by allowing data-driven decisions at huge scale to be in the hands of everyday uh, um, practitioners. Uh, and that's a journey that we are uh, wholeheartedly invested in and uh, are, are really excited about. Um. Yeah, I completely agree with Maria. I wanted to add something on Please. top of you, just when you think about that. Like a couple of weeks ago, I had the <coughs> pleasure to meet like a very young entrepreneur in the d design space. <coughs> and he showed me like this app, which does exactly what Maria says. It's called Mid Journey. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, it's basically a prompt, <laughs> like a text message <laughs> that you talk to a bot, as a designer, you, and you, you go like uh, forward slash imagine semicolon, uh, a red rose uh, painted in the style of Van Gogh, enter. And like in 20 seconds later, you have four images uh, that the, the bot is processing. And as designer, they use that, uh, uh, that uh, like the ability to interface the data, mm -hmm. uh, democratize that access, right? Uh, to change the engagement with client mm -hmm. at concept level. That's what they do, concepts, right? Yeah. So the, they, they start that engagement a lot e faster and they can do it real time. As the client kind of talks, they change the prompt and the machine e e evolves that. Uh, that are, it's unbelievable. So it makes you think like, well, capital markets is really behind. But w the journey that Mary's yeah. saying, El Seg is on, uh, it's, it's kind of that, right? <laughs> like uh, democratizing the access, improving the interface. Murray, I'm going to put you on the spot first. With the totality of the experience that you had, not only at LSE, but at DB prior to that, if you had to pick one market only where you think the biggest change is going, going to happen, and you can be broad, you can say commodities, you can say mm -hmm. FX, you can say crypto, you can say privates, equities, fixed income, anything you want, what would be the market that you think the biggest change is going to com come in um, in the next decade? Um, there, I think, I'm again, something that we are betting on, hmm. uh, but something that I really st feel strongly about is private equity markets. So private equity markets have got a big problem in efficiency at the moment. You're telling uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not liquid. They're expensive. They're, uh, you know, raising capital in private markets a costly thing <coughs> to do. Uh, transacting securities in the private market is nigh on impossible. Hmm. Uh, Sourcing and finding private companies to invest in is difficult to do. Uh, and all of these problems uh, are 
being faced by an asset class that is actually significant in size and scale. You know, as much as we all at stock exchanges love IPOs and primary markets, the amount of money, you know, last year we had one of the record years, the, the, the biggest IPO years in, in seven or eight years. The amount of money raised in private markets was more than double what was raised in public markets. Correct. So it is a really, really big market um, that is becoming, as we all know, a lot more mainstream with uh, uh, traditional investors and pools of capital. And we really need to solve the problem as to how to be able to have a, I think, a regulated, um, standardized, liquid, transferable, efficient uh, private equity market. Let us know how we can help. Our, our, <laughs> sense, our sense for that yeah. is that um, that happens uh, with distributed ledger technology. Yep. Um, we think that transfer of value on chain is probably the most likely uh, starting um, step for the actual secondary market. Um, we've just taken a minority investment in a, in a company called Flow with two W's, uh, which is interesting to, to look at. Mm -hmm. uh, portfolio management effectively company where uh, private companies can come onto that platform and the idea is that as that grows, uh, that gets opened up to potential mm -hmm. investors uh, in a digital way, <laughs> it's people meet uh, and then those, those cap tables are ultimately tokenized, uh, capital is raised and trans uh, transfer of value happens on chain. Um, so these are the, the this is what we're working on, um, but uh, the amount of traction that we've seen, even now with the regulator, I mean, that, 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 that's quite interesting. Uh, for a number of years, we've had conversations with regulators about private markets, and the regulators have always had other things to do. They've had resiliency to do, they've had FX markets to uh, conduct uh, things to look at, etc. Um, the traction that private markets is getting with the regulator now is much, much higher. Hmm. So the SEC is engaged, the FCA is engaged, uh, and whilst they haven't got a solution for it yet, they're recognizing the size of this market and the need for the, yeah. the well, their perception of the need for this market yeah. to be more regulated. Yeah. And I think that once you do move down that route and you start the ball rolling, um, that problem will be solved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the I find this so fascinating because like, I can look at it as like, you know, we are a gigantic pool of private capital and we care about being able to return investment. But there's also a, um, in this country in particular, a social contract aspect to that, which is, you know, the UK pensioner is, unfortunately in the developed world, like one of the worst off pen pensioners. Yeah. Their main reason is they cannot invest in private equity assets mm -hmm. broadly defined from VC to true PE. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because it's viewed as an illiquid asset that they can't call upon to make the payments to, make to the, the pen pensioner. Yep. If you can solve the liquidity question, you now can put a wall of capital from those pools, frankly behind pe yeah, places I'm like this, but more importantly, um, you can actually then give them the, the returns and allow the UK pensioner to be better off. And, and there's like a real like social con yeah. contract. I know it's like a really nerdy thing to say, but like there's and like an outside of all of our little world reason why Murray's yeah. like what he's saying is like really, really important. But also very importantly, it gives uh, <coughs> entrepreneurs the ability to build businesses yeah. and gives it gives the country, uh, well, it gives every all countries yeah. uh, the opportunity to not just have industry dominated by mega cap companies. It brings back the opportunity for people, good people with good ideas to go out, raise capital in an easy way, <laughs> not necessarily hock their life in order to raise capital and be able to um, be able to 
<laughs> enter and exit uh, the markets. And so that's something that we certainly hope and believe will be uh, will, will be the big next asset class. I think that'll be a really exciting change for everyone in this room if that happens, actually. Enrico? So I'm going back to something a little more boring okay. than that. Uh, <coughs> we, we think that uh, the it's a, a very big dichotomy, particularly in Europe, uh, is the uh, how uh, backwards uh, one of the plumbing of financial markets, uh, one of the markets is at the basis and plumbing of financial markets overall uh, is, uh, and it's the reap of financing market in general. Uh, extraordinarily manual in every aspect from discovery of like what the levels are like mm. data is like really scarce and ex the, the one it's around is very expensive uh, the um, execution is extraordinarily manual settlement is uh, absolutely abysmal yeah. uh, and 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 it costs a lot of money uh, yeah. to execute however without uh, financing repo markets you can't deploy leverage effectively in the system with the rates environment that we are experiencing right now kind of short-term financing becomes even more important uh, and and so we think that a combination of like macro conditions and uh, the uh, extraordinary manuality mm. of every step of the market is ripe for multiple technology solutions to come into that market and uh, make it a lot more modern, which means that it will give scale to a whole host of other marketplaces. Repos at the basis, as you know, like a bond markets, yep. future markets, swap markets, yep. you can't do any of those things without the amount of leverage that Ripple allows to do. The entire hedge fund industry is based on, yep. on that. Uh, product to be mm -hmm. uh, eff efficient and effective, so that's a lot of money there. Yeah. Uh, so we, we 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 really think that's going to change. And the interesting thing is like a lot of the things we talked about are deployable from a technology perspective, deployable to that marketplace. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can think of uh, it's a very a heavy credit, heavy credit balance sheet, yeah. uh, every balance sheet uh, you know type product. Yeah. So the use of uh, uh, structural communication to power AI, a machine learning mechanism to predict, uh, you know, defaults to predict what is the best op opti optimization from a kind of balance sheet perspective uh, would be uh, would have an impact. The uh, data point that uh, Mary uh, yep. described earlier is obviously uh, applicable. And on the settlement side is where a lot of the kind of digital ledger, uh, um, you know, wholesale capital markets initiative are focused on yeah. its settlement and in, in in financing repo is a little bit uh, um, uh, un under 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 uh, under value. I think I don't know if Federico is is in the room yet, but we hey we talked about this very point the other day, right? So where uh, you know you can totally do like uh, settlement securities if you're pre-funded yeah. uh, on on ledger, no problem. But when once you e e e you know e well, no problem. There's a problem, but it's yeah. easier. Uh, but but once you introduce the con the, the, the 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 fact that uh, you may not have the security to borrow it, yeah. or you may need, may need to have the cash to buy it to borrow it, that creates additional complexity where like digital ledger can absolutely, nice. uh, you know, impact dramatically the effect. I don't think you knew this when you picked Repo, but Federico is not the only happy per person in this room. There are four other people in this room All right. who have businesses focused around addressing uh, the inefficiencies in the European Repo market. So. You Excellent. made at least four other people 
I'm really happy with that, uh, with, uh, with that answer. Happy to talk to all you guys. <laughs> very, very, very uh, convicting on this. Which is really fantastic. Um, I don't want to monopolize the question asking. And so in the 15 minutes that we have left for the structured portion of our uh, evening, I'd love just to give you all an opportunity to, to ask some questions. And if you please don't mind, introduce yourself. And if you'll grab <coughs> the orange cube and talk right into the cube, that would be like really helpful. Yeah, try not to throw uh, it. Give the gentleman <laughs> in the back the first one. Hi everyone, um, I have a question for Mari. So um, I'm um, co-founder and CEO of Valk. Uh, today we're active in uh, mainly in DeFi and Web3 and data, but before that, I'm, we I'm built- battling, I'm battling to hear you, sorry. Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, now I'm saying, so today Valk, we are active mainly in DeFi data, but before that we built an app in tokenization of private markets, we had about a hundred boutique banks using it and more than five billion dollars worth of deals on the platform mainly through data rooms and stuff like that but in the two years that we were running it not one single client wanted to actually tokenize the assets in order to trade it the reasons were many um, regulatory issues the fact that none of the exchanges were open i'm speaking about you know arcax sdx etc now you guys made an investment I think some, there was another deal that happened recently in, in the same space. Why do you think the landscape is different now? Because what you said previously, that makes total sense. We heard the same stuff like two, three years ago and like nothing happened, even, you know, in the DeFi and crypto bull run. So I'd like to know why you think the, the landscape is different now. Um, I think, you know, it's a good point. One of the, one of the, challenges of this type of transformation is the time taken for market adoption. Any of us that have grown markets or built markets know that it takes a lot longer than you initially <coughs> think to, to do until such time as there's some sort of tipping point uh, and things catch on, you know, even, even with TradeWeb. You know, yeah, absolutely. TradeWeb took a long time until it, it really caught on. Um, and we've seen the same thing with a, with a number of other markets. The thing that I think makes a difference in this case is this is being done with regulators. So that market will start off as being regulated. And when the market starts off as being regulated, I think the, the potential group of people that are interested is significantly higher. Uh, and that's what that's why we believe that this is the right time now to have a regulated private uh, market. Thank you for that answer, Mary, and thank you for the question. Anyone else? Any other takers? Oh, and please, if you'll introduce your, yourself. Ah, uh, yes, I'm uh, Reza Ahmed, CEO of Wise Alpha. Um, the question to Enrico: um, Why isn't the corporate bond market easily accessible to all types of investor? And why isn't it traded online uh, as easily? So, okay, so is it, is it well, good question, first of all. Uh, institutionally, it's, be, it's been changing uh, in the institutional space. So I think if you look at the institutional space, when we talk about institutional space, we think, you know, the activity that kind of begins with asset managers, hedge fund, pension funds, like non-retail. Non in Europe, 
is electronic, difficult to estimate, but it's electronic and not about accessible, but electronic, which should go to towards accessibility, uh, 70% give or take. Having said that, particularly in Europe, retail uh, is not. It's not. Uh, there's various reasons for it. It depends where you look. Europe as ever is very fragmented. And, uh, so you say, for example, in, in like Italy, uh, I'm Italian. In Italy, like the, 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 the bond markets is, uh, um, ac retail access to bond markets is high, particularly obviously domestic issues, mostly governments, but also, also corporates. Uh, well, in the UK, it's kind of close to zero. So now to answer your your question, why is it? Uh, it's the nature of the market is to be fragmented, uh, right? Uh, the way uh, an issuer, the issuer, uh, the pattern of issuance is not standardized. So there's like, uh, like a, an a incredible amount of BMW bonds. BMW is one of the largest issuers, you know, like almost like a financial company, really. Uh, and and there's, there's no standards in, in that. Therefore, you'll find yourself uh, as an investor having to understand, particularly as a retail investor, having to have a, like, a, like a lot deeper knowledge of what you uh, 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 what you want to put your money on and, and, and therefore a, a larger appetite for risk because you, you're not going to be able to kind of really understand exactly that. Uh, there is also a, a, um, a, a, a factor to consider. An element of democratization of access to credit is coming, and we are very convicted on this too, uh, via the ETF route. So fixed income ETF are Skyrocket. growing significantly, skyrocketing. The accessibility of that, including retail, despite, despite the UK, even in the UK with a very strange uh, model of retail access uh, to this thing, is, is growing extraordinarily fast. Uh, in the rest of Europe, is is growing, not yet on retail, but we think it's coming. In the US, the retail uh, uh, ETF component is super high, particularly in fixed income. So if you want an exposure in the, in the US uh, corporate market, IG, I, I'll go LQD a, a, every time a day, like it's pretty easy to do from Robinhood, you know, like it's a share. It's coming to Europe, and so LSC is super engaged on that too. Uh, but we're not there yet. So I think this e the ETF angle is kind of what will bring that uh, access easier because it standardizes a little bit. Just to maybe uh, add on to that, I think some of the trends that we've just been talking about, if you think about uh, the democratization of data, talking about the, the complication of non-standard prospectuses and being <laughs> able to understand the differences in, uh, in non-standard way, democratization of data and higher uh, financial education of consumers will allow for, you know, will, will be a part of that. Um, the friction involved in being able to actually trade these securities is, is high because of the legal requirements, the, as things move to the chain and things become more tokenized, again, that those building blocks get, you know, those dominoes get knocked over. Um, and so, I think that problems like that, and there are loads of them around the market, with these trends of pushing us towards is the tools to be able to start solving these problems. Mm. And we do have, we do have, as you say, you know, in the UK, and in the UK there's obviously, there's also some uh, regulatory reasons for retail, lack of retail participation in, in anything really, to be fair. But uh, as, as these trends continue, um, 
I think we'll knock over a lot more of these individual use case problems. Yeah, totally. We have time for one. Uh, please oh, sorry, I was follow just on your comment. Just do one quick follow-up question. I, I, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. Just one final interesting question. Um, so instead of the ETF, fo ETF focus, which is obviously where fixed income is going towards, you know, for retail, if there was a platform that you know created a centralized market for single name corporate bond trading both retail and institutional clients and effectively you know tap into one of the biggest financial markets in the world which is yet to you know embrace technology what would that be worth what would that be worth <laughs> yeah. a lot uh, well um, uh if you made that work uh uh it depends like uh, uh rana will know better answer yeah, yeah. that uh it worth a lot like i think I'm a bit dubious on the, in the current structure, I think that the bigger problem is a structure of issuance. I agree, right? totally. It, it just, it, it, think about that. In, in government bonds, right, the treasury uh, market is the, obviously the largest market in government bonds in the world. There is a very clear pattern of issuance uh, in treasuries. Yeah. And, it, and so you, you have points on the curve which are constantly tapped and constantly liquid. So you can develop order books on that. Like we have one of the most active ones and everything. But uh, uh, even in that uh, market, when, uh, when, 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 when volatile volatility occurs, like last week, you have like gaps and stuff. Without that uh, pattern of issuance more standardized in corporate bonds, I, I find it's difficult to concentrate liquidity on particular issues. Yeah. So some, some venues in our space are attempting it uh, and, and with some degree of success, uh, but uh, um, it's, it's um, challenging. Linking back to ETFs, right? If you were to kind of like engage one of the, with the ETF issuers, they would say, but um, you know, you need that. You do need, from an ETF perspective, a really broad range of bonds in the portfolio to be able to uh, minimize tracking error. Uh, yeah. So it's like a smaller portfolio, in a way, like kind of like negates that. Uh, I know I'm not supposed to answer the question, but I'm going to just add on to that, which is with the benefit of being, you know, two plus years out of Goldman, I will reflect on the fact that while we're seeing the institutional market do what you said, and I think that that is like totally easy. I remember. The case is very clear now that except for the on-the-run issuances of the current index in credit, there's actually very little trading. And if you think about the equities model, notwithstanding Murray's comment on like you know why it's member against member, the reality is that there are firms that are willing to actually market make yeah. because they know they can go home flat every day. But if you look at like the provisioning of liquidity in credit for the purpose of retail, there's actually a very, very high chance that the random off the run, which means not the most current issuance, that you as a retail person decide you wake up that you want to trade, that market maker is going to have to hold it for more than you know, the trading day. And that's not their business model. So we have like an entire market that is actually structured around the ability to like move passive liquidity for the provisioning of prices that due to the lack of trading, in individual corporate names makes it very hard to do what you've just said. But like, let me tell you, if that can happen, it's gonna make a really valuable com company. Uh, I know Michael had his hand up and he will be can our I last question. Can okay, I just so quickly add to that? Add to uh, this one. I mean, I think one of the, the, the way I would look at that is I think that 
the creation of that will add a tremendous amount of value, but the barriers to entry of creating the second centralized marketplace challenges the business model of the value of the first. Yeah, totally. Because then, then it becomes about workflow. And once it becomes about workflow, uh, once you've cracked the nut of, uh, I don't know, adoption or liquidity provision or whatever it, the secret source is, it's unlikely to be associated with non-replicable IP. And then it becomes scale and workflow. And can that, can that bond workflow sit in uh, TradeWeb's real estate? So how difficult is it for TradeWeb to say, really like that idea, I'm gonna create that in my workflow. They've already got a load of people. Um, do people prefer to stay in their real estate and trade the corporate, you know, corporate bonds or, or whatever it might be? So I think that that's a way I would think about the, uh, I'd think about the development of that market. And that's what we, that's what we're finding. Uh, exchanges, now that we are seeing uh, solutions that are preventing the regional uh, moat mm. that used to be CSDs. Now we are seeing solutions that challenge that. Um, exchanges are not about liquidity or about stocks. Exchanges are about workflow. Mm. And that's where, you know, th uh, that's where I think that that future is. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Michael? Yeah, thank you, guys. Uh, Michael Sigmore, I'm the founder of Broadhaven Ventures and the Altco's Mainstream Podcast. Uh, so what you said, Murray, was not lost on me. Um, question for you is around alts. Understand that uh, like more data and transparency will help create more participation in markets. However, you could also argue that illiquidity is a feature, not a bug in private markets. So how do you think about that? I mean, you're an exchange, I get that. But how do you think about that, that interplay in private markets between more data, more liquidity, and also potentially being a bug, not a feature? Yeah, um, well, I think whether it's a feature or a bug depends on who's, who's looking at it, right? Uh, my sense is, like we saw in, in public equity markets moving from voice to electronic, like we're seeing in fixed income markets moving from voice to electronic, uh, the development and evolution that solves the problem for the consumer is the path that uh, it is likely to take in the long term. And my, my sense is from a consumer's perspective, illiquidity in the private markets is probably more in the bug category than in the feature category. And to the extent that private markets could be liquid for the ultimate consumer, I think that um, it, it, it solves a problem. Now, you can say, and, and, and I get the point that that illiquidity causes opportunity depending on what the type of consumer is. Um, but if you think about that in the whole to the, to the entire population, that is not PEs and VCs, mm -hmm. and, but, but a much, much broader population, my sense is that direction is more a bug than a, than a, a feature. Thank you, Michael, for your question, and Mary, for your answer. Um, please, if you'll just join me in thanking both Mary and Enrico, because I've thought about when you guys first got on stage that it's not every day that we have here Balderton C-suite of two $20 billion-plus com companies talking to such a small and intimate group. And so we're enormously grateful that you gave your time to Balderton, 
to the family of Balderton um, to be with us th this evening. And I also just want to renew my thanks to Steph and to um, Savesh and to Rob and to Claudia on, on the Balderton team. So thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And please continue to enjoy the food and the beverages. Thank you both so Thank much. You.